Wonderful. Good morning. It's an absolute joy uh, to be with you and to share with you again. And thank you so much for the invitation, the opportunity to be part of this, and also the privilege to kick off a brand new series, which is entitled Poured Out. And uh, I think over the next four weeks together, we're doing that. So really want to encourage you uh, to lean into that. And uh, I'm going to take a reading from Luke chapter 7. So I'm going to kick off this series looking at an amazing moment where someone poured something out for Jesus. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to take a reading from Luke chapter 7 and we'll read from verse 36. Now while you're finding that, let me just uh, make a couple of little comments sort of that will help us within this. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll know or you may have come across two stories that are very, very similar. One is recorded in Matthew, Mark and John and the other one is recorded in Luke. Now at first glance they look like the same stories but A little bit of a closer examination will show us they're two different stories. And and for that reason, they're worthy of considering separately. The one that we're going to look at happens early on in the ministry of Jesus up in Galilee in the house of a man called Simon, who also happens to be a Pharisee. And the woman there is nameless. We don't know who she is. We can guess who she might have been. But we don't really know. And she anoints the feet of Jesus in worship. If you look at the Matthew, Mark and John story, that happens in the south in a place called Bethany. It happens just a few days before the execution of Jesus. And we know that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who anoints Jesus. And she anoints him for burial in the house of Simon the leper. So sometimes Christians get a bit confused because they look like the same stories but there's a lot of differences and we end up trying to match the differences and that'll make your head hurt because the the differences can't be matched because they're two different stories. So Dr. Luke has given us this beautiful unique story probably preceding the story that happens in Matthew, Mark and John and he's given us that because he wants us to see certain things that are important to us as followers of Jesus as we consider this idea of being poured out. Now, a couple of little things as we read the text I want you to notice because uh, the cultural markers here are really important. Jesus will refer here to denarii, uh, which is a local currency. And a denarius was the equivalent to one day's salary for a laborer. So when he says 500 denarii, that's like a a year and a half salary. When he says 50 denarii, it's roughly a month and a half or just under two months salary. So that'll help you in case you've never come across these uh, words before. And also notice this in our story. Uh, The center of attention is the woman. She's the one pouring something out, which we'll see in a little minute. But what's really striking is that everybody in our story speaks. Simon the host speaks, Jesus speaks, Simon's friends speak, the only person not speaking is the woman and yet it's her voice that we hear loud and clear. And the last little thing I want you to do, as as we read this story, I'm going to be asking a question in my sermon. And here's the main question as we begin our wonderful series poured out together. What made Jesus turn? 
So as we're reading that, have a little think about what we're going to do together, and then we will dive straight in. So here we go, Luke chapter 7, uh, that's right, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and it says this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now note this, even though Simon thinks it in his head, Jesus answered him. So Simon's thinking something and Jesus responds verbally. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, about a year and a half salary, and the other 50, just under two months salary. Neither of them had the money to to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. The natural place where our eyes go in this story is to the woman. It's a remarkable, controversial, exciting, dynamic, and disturbing moment. She's breaking all sorts of cultural laws and rules, unspoken stuff, not Bible stuff, but cultural rules of her day in order to do this to Jesus. This is a moment of profound extravagance where the woman is lavishing herself onto Jesus, clearly because Jesus has done something already in her life. And not only does she lavish herself, but she brings a very, very expensive gift to him. And if we were watching this live, all our eyes would be on her. She is the one that is getting the center of attention. Simon's eyes are on her. Simon's guests' eyes are on her. The only one who doesn't seem to be looking at her initially is Jesus. And we'll explain that in just a moment. And of course, we're going to return to her extravagance in just a minute because she demonstrates the spirit of what it means to pour something out. When we read a story like this in the 21st century, 
We're not being called to copy the woman's actions, but we are being called to capture her attitude. This is really important, especially for men in the room. Women in the room will find it much easier to sort of identify with some of the imagery that's going on here because it is a beautiful, feminine uh, expression of of love towards Jesus. Although it's not just the the expression of a woman, it's the expression of a worshiper. So most times when when, when people read this, perhaps men in the room, we back off a little bit because this feels very feminine and, and therefore we can exclude ourselves from this but we mustn't do that because Dr. Luke includes this not as the actions of a woman though it is a woman at the center of the story but of the actions of a worshiper are you with me he's not presenting the actions forgive me ladies but I've heard this preached of an emotional woman he's presenting the actions of an intentional woman Now this is very, very important for us because then as men in the room, I find this, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. I love this story. When I get to heaven, I hope there's a Netflix library where we can sit and watch some of these stories. This would be one of my top three outside of, outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This would be one of my top three I want to watch because this story has had a transformational impact on me. And the reason it's had a transformational impact on me is because I've understood Luke is not asking me to copy her. He's asking me to capture her. He's asking me to capture the same mentality and attitude. And that's at the heart of our poured out uh, series that we want to do. It's not about so much what we do. It's to do with how we do it. It's to do with the attitude and motivation with which we come to the Lord. Now, it's easy as we are focusing our attention on the woman to miss a huge moment in the story. Sometimes in the Gospels, you have beautiful big moments that are sort of hidden in plain sight. And there's a massive hidden in plain sight moment in this story. It is huge. It's so huge that actually, unless we understand what's going on in the room, we will miss it. And for years, I missed it until I started to actually study this story in detail. And here it is. Here's the $64 million moment in the story outside of the woman's anointing of Jesus. It says this, then he, that's Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon. There is a turning moment in this story. And because we're looking at the woman and because we ultimately focus on Jesus' reaction to the woman, we can miss the power of this turning moment. But it's really, really significant. Now, to try and understand the power of this turning moment, before I get into the detail, I've got to give you some little cultural backgrounds. First thing is this. We've got to remember that the dinner table here is not like yours at home. So if you come to my house, my dining room is a rectangular uh, dining room table with chairs around it. And if you had dinner with us, you would sit on the, on the chair and eat at the table and we would sit like that. In the world of Jesus, certainly in this moment especially, and also when he celebrates his last supper with his disciples, Jesus is not sitting at a table. He is reclining at a table. I don't know if you noticed that in the text. Dr. Luke drops the little hint for us that Jesus was reclining. Now, what does that mean? It means essentially that it was probably the dinner was put on a low table, maybe only two foot high. 
And then off the table, in various arrangements, there would be couches. And essentially, you would lie down to eat. What a cool idea that is. I'm liking that very, very much. Now, there's two reasons I'm liking that. Number one, lying down to eat. That's just, I, I, I think it'd be super relaxing. Secondly, you can get more food in when you're lying down because, you know, when you're sitting up, your digestive system's all crunched up. You get a little bit bloated, but actually when you're lying down, wow, it's more room for food to get in. It's really cool. And also in the world of Jesus, a meal was a social event. It, it wasn't just eat and go. You tended to have fellowship and community around the dinner table. So a lot's going on there. So remember this. They're not sitting at a table. They're reclining off the table. When they're reclining, they will probably have their feet away from the table for obvious reasons. And then they will be leaning on their left arm and eating with their right hand. Now, certain cultures in the room will know exactly why that is. If you know, don't know what that is, the reason for that, Aaron will explain that to you afterwards. Okay, there's a reason you're not eating with your left hand, and uh, I don't want to put you off your lunch. But anyway, and that would, be, that would be generally it. So you're probably leaning on your left arm, and you're eating with your right hand. Feet away from the table. Okay, if you got all that uh, as we think about this. And then he, here's a potential layout of the room. Now, we're not exactly sure what the room would look like. But research, cultural research suggests that some rooms were done in a sort of a U-shape dynamic. So you've got the table and then a U-shaped positioning of couches around the table. Now my, my image is a little bit crude. It's, it's not, very, not very dynamic, but it gives you roughly the idea. So here's what I'm suggesting to you from the evidence of Luke 7. The table is in the middle. Simon as the host is probably somewhere at the top of the table or a prominent position around the table. Jesus as the chief guest is somewhere close to Simon. In fact, the suggestion is he's facing Simon. That's why I've put him at the other side of the table. And when the woman comes in to anoint Jesus, what does she do? We're told specifically that she stands behind Jesus. Then she kneels at the couch at, the, at his feet and ministers to him. And what are we told thirdly in the context of this story? Simon can see everything. Okay? So try and work with me on that. Imagine the woman enters the room and she stands behind Jesus' feet on this couch and then she kneels down and begins to work on his feet. Simon is probably the other side of the table, uh, leaning on his left arm and choking now on his olives as he looks at this woman doing what she's doing. He can see everything. And while the woman is ministering to Jesus, Jesus seems to be passively just carrying on having his dinner. He doesn't seem to acknowledge her to begin with. Now, now here's the thing I want you to see. What that means is this. When Jesus turns toward the woman, what's he doing to Simon? In the moment that he turns to her, he's turning his back on him. So when Jesus turns, two things are happening. He's turning from something. And he's turning to something. Now the easy answer is, well, he's turning from Simon. Actually, no, he's not. He's not. He's not. Because, because Jesus loves Simon. Jesus accepted the invitation to Simon's house. Jesus wants to be there. If Jesus didn't want to be at Simon's house, he wouldn't have gone. 
The fact that Jesus is there means that Jesus is trying to connect with this man. He's trying to reach out to him. We know that Simon's trying to straighten Jesus out, but Jesus is also there to try and straighten Simon out. We know that Jesus is the menu. He's the main course that night. Simon and his friends have invited him in order to test his theology, but Jesus has probably accepted the invitation so that he can reach out to Simon and touch him, perhaps with his love and with his grace. So so people say, well, he's turning from Simon and he's turning to the woman. But I want to suggest something even deeper than that is going on. And in Hebrew culture, the culture of Jesus, the face and the back are very significant. If God, according to the Old Testament, turns his back on us, he is displeased. In fact, it can be a sign of his impending judgment or discipline. When God turns his back on his people as an image, that's a very, very fearful thing. And of course, you will know uh, that when God turns his face towards something... That's a sign of his grace and blessing. In fact, one of the greatest blessings that has come back into vogue because of the song, the blessing, is the great priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. There's no coincidence that the face is associated with grace and the face is associated with peace. So in the Hebrew culture, to turn your back on someone was a sign that you weren't pleased with them. To turn your face towards them is a sign of pleasure or a sign of grace or a sign of acceptance. Are you with me? Now, when we put all of that together, the layout of the room, what's going on with the woman? And then Jesus turning this hidden in plain sight moment. We've got a significant event. When Jesus turns his back on Simon and turns his face towards the woman because if Jesus is lying on his left arm, then in order to face the woman who's behind him, he has to swivel his whole body round. So he's swiveling on his couch. His back is to Simon and his face is to the woman and he speaks to Simon while looking at the woman. All sorts of social implications going on there. Now, we miss all of that because that's not part of our culture. We miss all of that because maybe we don't understand the layout of the room. And we miss all of that because we're not looking for it. But there's a moment here that is so significant, which puts the attitude of Simon and the attitude of the woman into profound contrast and relief. Are you with me? I know that all sounds a bit technical for a Sunday morning, but are you still with me? All right, if you hold that thought, then what I'm about to show you is profound in the sense of the context of thinking about what attracts or displeases the Lord. What made Jesus turn? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. He turned from indifference. Jesus is not turning from Simon. That's too easy an answer. Because we look at the story, oh, he's a Pharisee. Jesus and the Pharisees like had a bit of a a running war. And therefore Jesus is probably turning away from the man. No, no, no. He's not turning from Simon. He's turning from something Simon said. Now remember up to this point, Simon has thought everything in his head. So his attitude toward Jesus and his attitude towards the woman is all in his brain. 
And then Jesus sort of teases it out. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon goes, go on, teacher, tell me. And maybe this is our opportunity to trap you. I don't know. And then Jesus tells the story. Now, as soon as Jesus starts telling the story, Simon, who has been trained in the art of argument, he's learned the Bible by arguing. That's how the Jewish world learned the Bible in the desert. If you went to a Bible school in first century Israel, you would hear nothing but noise. Argument, chewing over the text, push-pull, push-pull, push-pull. Argument sharpened the mind. Simon has been trained on argument. And as soon as Jesus starts telling this story, Simon knows where it's going. He knows that Jesus is about to drop the hammer on him. And so Jesus tells the story of two men who owe money to a moneylender. One owes a year and a half salary. One owes a month and a half salary. Neither can pay. And so Jesus asks the big question, Simon, you're a clever man. If the moneylender cancels the debt of both people, who will love the moneylender more? Easy answer, right? Easy answer. But look at Simon's answer. I suppose. My granny would have said, there's no supposing about it, son. One commentator describes this answer as an answer of supercilious indifference, I suppose. And actually, what's really interesting here is that the tone of Jesus changes after this answer. If you look at the way Jesus speaks before this answer and the way he speaks after, there's a tonal shift. The posture of Jesus shifts after this answer. And after this answer, Simon never speaks again. He's silent. It's a big moment, I suppose. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. This was Simon's moment. This was Simon's opportunity to go, oh my goodness, I know exactly what you're saying. This woman, I'm looking at her. She is a sinner, but it's clear that something dramatic has happened in her life. She's changed. And therefore, actually, I, I, I should be like her and offering this sort of extravagant worship to God. But no, his answer is one of total indifference. I suppose. Here's a definition of indifference. To be nonchalant, dismissive, or impassive. A modern translation of indifference is whatever. My children know that if we're having a serious conversation and they respond to me with whatever... The Ulster Celt will rise in me. The red hand of Ulster rises in me. And they'll get a fairly robust response to whatever. Whatever is indifference. Whatever is the shrug of the shoulders. Whatever is, I don't really care. Whatever. Now, now listen to me carefully what I'm about to say to you. Don't hear this the wrong way or you'll get upset at the wrong thing. Jesus loves every person in this room passionately. We know that because Jesus Christ poured out his life on the cross for every one of us. None of us would be here today if it wasn't for the poured out grace of God. So he loves you. There's no argument, no debate, 
doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you're going through, doesn't matter what your life looks like. I know categorically you and I are loved. Nothing will ever change that. Just as he loves Simon, he loves me and you. And if you're a child of God, there's a sense in which we've begun to discover what that loveness looks like and feels like. It's amazing. You are loved. But hear me carefully now. Though he loves you and me, there are certain attitudes he hates. One of the attitudes he hates is, Let's worship the Lord this morning. Let's take our Bibles out. Let's think about serving him. One of the attitudes he hates is indifference. I mean, he really hates it. John, that's a bit strong. No, it's not. It's true. Jesus spoke to a church. Church in a place called Laodicea. Famous for its hot and cold running springs. And he said to this church, there's one thing I, I really don't like. It's, it's the lukewarmness of your responses. In fact, he says, because of the lukewarmness of that, I will spit you out of my mouth. We've had incredibly warm temperatures recently. And I remember uh, last week just getting into the car and I had a bottle of water and I was pretty thirsty. And I reached for my bottle of water and in my brain, I'm hoping for a cool drink. But of course, sitting in my car in the heat, the bottle of water has turned warm. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's bleh. My wife loves hot water. I give her breakfast in bed every morning. It's dead easy. I just boil the kettle, pour it into a cup, take it to her. Marvelous, marvelous. Almost 35 years of marriage. It's the easiest gig that I've got going on. Just a cup of water. There you are. Uh, you don't need to put any cold in it. You don't need to put a tea bag in it. You, every time Dawn goes to a restaurant and says, can I have hot water? People go, would you like that cool down? No, no, I want it hot. Would you like a tea bag in it? No, no, I just want hot water. Would you like an ice cube in it? No, leave it. Hot water, just hot water. People look at her like, that's weird. But she loves it. I've tried. I can't get used to hot water. Not without amazing coffee in it, okay? So I, I struggle with hot water uh, on its own. But I love cold water. And yesterday we were out in the garden gardening and my goodness, copious amounts of iced water were being dispensed yesterday. And amazing, you stand in a hot garden where you've been digging or you've been planting or you've been weeding and then you drink a something as simple as ice cold water. Wow. Marvelous. But the attitude of indifference to God is lukewarm. And and the Lord spits that attitude out. And that's what Jesus is turning away from here today. That's what he's turning away from in this. He's not turning from Simon. He loves Simon. What he's turning away from, can I, can I say this as strongly as I can, is a terrible attitude of indifference. I suppose. This was the moment, the opportunity for Simon to grab hold of what Jesus was offering the simple explanation of a story and yet Simon responds with indifference we're we're going to be thinking about different aspects of being poured out this this month 
this next four weeks. Listen, whatever it ends up looking like practically, whatever, whatever poured out looks like for you, looks like for me, whatever way we express that, the, the main thing the Lord is after is that our attitudes reflect that pouring out. He, he's not, what we give is not the primary thing that motivates him because he, he's the God of the universe. He already has everything. He already possesses everything. He already owns the universe. It's not so much what we give him. It's the attitude with which we give. It's the posture with which we give. Those are the things he responds to because those are the things that deeply attract him. And and when we as followers of Jesus become indifferent, that's the attitude that really irritates him. Now, please, before I move on, let let me make sure you're not mishearing me. As a dad, I love my kids. All three of them are all adults now. My youngest is about to get married next month. And and I love my kids dearly. I would do anything for my kids. My love for my children is not under question. But sometimes their attitudes, sometimes their behaviours, sometimes the way they respond to me have not pleased me. And we mustn't confuse displeasure with, with lack of love of. The Lord can be displeased with an attitude, but love you. The Lord can be displeased with my response, but his love for me is unquestioned. And you mustn't get those two things confused because he loves Simon, he loves you. He loves Simon, he loves me. But sometimes I can come into the presence of God like today, or or I can be serving Jesus in a different part of my, my, my world and my attitude towards sacred things, my attitude towards a holy God, my attitude towards the creator and sustainer and savior of the world can be a bit, well, whatever. And it's the whatever Not you, it's the whatever he hates. Imagine if Jesus had have looked at a dying world and went, whatever. Come on. We're here today because he poured out his best for me and you. Are you with me? So he's not just turning away from Simon. I think he's turning away from, I suppose, He's turning from an attitude of indifference. And we must guard our hearts. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Whatever's going on in your life, guard your heart from an attitude of whatever. Does that make sense? You still love me? All right. So if he turns away from indifference, what's he turning towards? A couple of things that were landing this. I think he's turning towards extravagance. If he's turning away from an attitude of whatever, I suppose, then what's he turning towards? Now, there's two little clues to the extravagance of the woman. It says in verse 37, I don't know if you noticed, it said she learned that Jesus was eating at Simon's house. That word learn there doesn't mean just to learn by accident. It means she, she intentionally came to know. She knew where Jesus was. This wasn't a fluke. This wasn't her walking past Simon's house wondering, I wonder what's going on in there. Let's go and have a wee look. No, no. This is the woman deliberately positioning herself where Jesus was. This is a woman who has gone with intention to where 
Jesus is. But look at the second thing. Look, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She came there ready to give. See that? She didn't arrive thinking, oh, if only, if only I had an offering. If only I had something on me to give to Jesus. No, no. It's clear from the way Dr. Lucas constructed the language. She's there because she knows he's there. And because she knows he's there, she turns up prepared. Love that. Intention. Intentionality doesn't sound very exciting. But it's a wonderful part of extravagance and love. That idea of being intentional towards. Intentional towards something. This is where Jesus is going to be. I'm going to get there. And not only am I going to get there, but I'm going to make sure when an opportunity arises, I am ready to take that opportunity. I want you to see two things about her offering. The extravagance, which are so, so important. Number one, her offering was expensive. Super expensive. Now, we're not quite sure what her alabaster jar looked like. Again, we're being helped in the 21st century by incredible advances in cultural studies and archaeology, which is digging stuff up and giving us a little bit of an insight about what this may have looked like. And this is a fairly good guess of what her alabaster jar may have looked like. Probably a long, slim jar. You can see, if you look really closely, about halfway down, there's like a little sort of mark. That's where the bottle would be sealed. And even uh, a, a necklace or a strap could be attached to that part so it could be carried around. So, so, you, so you've got this sort of beautiful, beautiful uh, jar that the woman would have on her. Now, it may or may not have looked exactly like that, but I think we're in the ballpark here. I think this is looking uh, really close to what the woman brings that day. So what? Well, a couple of things about about this offering, which are super important. Number one, the origin tells us it was expensive. It's called an alabaster jar because it's from alabastron in Egypt. It's not just a random thing. It's, that's the name of the town in Egypt that made the glass. So this is imported glass or imported product. Now, you don't need to be a business person to understand anything imported. Always the, the price goes up. Don't we know that? Uh, and the price is going up here. So, so this isn't even local stuff. This is stuff that's been imported from Egypt. Therefore, by very definition, even the bottle that's, that's carrying the perfume, we haven't even got to the perfume yet, that bottle is expensive. The second thing is the contents. The contents... The pure nard inside here is made from a, a herbal root found then in the, in the, in the hillside, the, the foothills of the Himalayas, in places like Bhutan and Kashmir, India and Nepal. The Valerian Achaea herbal root is, is the core component of this beautiful perfume. So, so not only is the glass from Egypt but the contents are from the foothills of the Himalayas. Are you with me? 
So this is an expensive gift that's going on here. And then we roughly know the value of this gift. Now, this is where the Matthew, Mark, and John story help us. Because the disciples there, namely Judas, it has to be said, puts a value on the gift. He says, this gift, which is very similar to the one given in Luke, this gift could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. And I don't know if you noticed in Jesus' story, did you, that in Jesus' story, when he tells the story of the person who has the bigger debt, it's 500 denarii, roughly, roughly the price of this offering. I don't think that's a fluke. I think Jesus is like dropping that in because he's showing that the woman's extravagance has been noted by him. So its origin is expensive. Its contents are expensive. We're told in another story that actually it may have been sold for the equivalent of a year's salary. The average UK salary right now, uh, uh, there are variations regionally, but the average UK salary is around £30,000 a year. Yeah. Some of you are saying, I wish. <laughs> but it's a roughly £30,000 a year. Imagine, imagine sticking 30 grand in a bottle, and just dropping it up the front, and then just walking away. Wow, that's sort of what the woman's doing. And because it's in the Bible and it's a fluffy story and almost a fairy tale, we sort of just move on. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is profound extravagance. And here's why she gives this extravagance, because the cause was greater than the cost. Yes, cause is greater than the cost. Why is she being extravagant? Because he has been extravagant to her. He's done something amazing in her life. And she is not looking at the cost. She's looking at the cause. I was in Singapore recently and the guy who was with me took me out somewhere. And on the way to this particular destination, we passed through a mall that had some of the most expensive watches in the world. In this mall. Petit Philippe's, uh, Omega, Rolex, they're all there. All these amazing watches. And I, as I'm passing by these amazing watches, I'm just having a little glance. And he, and he said to me, there's no prices in the window. If you have to look at the price, you can't go in the shop. <laughs> All right? It's, it's, but yet there would be people queuing up to go in there and buy those watches. Why? Because they want a Rolex. Because they want a Petit Philippe. Because they want an Omega. And actually because of the cause, they're prepared to pay the cost. Which for some of us would be shocking. But this is shocking. The woman gives extravagantly. And the Lord loves extravagance, not because of the extravagance itself. Look, he wasn't impressed by the perfume. He's impressed by the attitude. The attitude that says the cause is worth the cost. That's what he loves. He loves it when we understand what we have and we understand what we've been given. And in response to that, we say, I will pour myself out for that. That's what he loves. That's what he loves. That's the attitude he loves. Here's the second thing about the gift. Does the band want to come and join me? Do you guys want to get ready? Not only was her gift expensive, but it was 
entire. Look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 38. It says, and she poured the perfume out, massaged it onto his feet. Incredible. So unlike Mary, and later on, that anoints not just the feet and body of Jesus, but the head of Jesus. Wow, this woman is anointing the feet of Jesus. It's an incredible moment of generosity that she's given to him. But again, I want you to notice in our little bottle, there's no pumper on the perfume. There's no stopper. Once the woman makes the decision to open this bottle, it has to all go. It's not a 10% bottle. It's not an occasional bottle. This is a one-off hit. And she is about to pour 30 grand onto the feet of Jesus. Consumed by him. Consumed by his love. Consumed by his mercy. It's quite clear that Dr. Luke is making it clear to us through the words of Jesus. She has already been forgiven. She has already encountered it. She has already had her debt cancelled. She has already been transformed. This is not the night she gets forgiven. This is the night she lets the world know she's already been forgiven. She has had her life transformed. And she cracks open that bottle. And it must have been an amazing moment. Because remember, all, all the men around that table are now in shock. She's, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's already washed his feet with her tears. She's already unbound her hair. My goodness, we could spend all night on that one. That's an incredible idea. She's kissing his feet. It's, it's outrageous. And the whole room is silent. And then suddenly, crack. And the minute they hear a crack, suddenly a perfume hits the air. As the woman begins to pour out an extravagant offering on Jesus. I want to submit to you that she was extravagant to him. Because he had been extravagant to her. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. Please don't be offended by anything I say today. I hope it challenges you but doesn't offend you. In my 36 years of Christian ministry, Christians have become less extravagant with Jesus when we forget how extravagant he's been with us. In my experience, people have blamed their lack of extravagance on a million reasons. Some of them very legitimate. But deep down, our extravagance for him tends to diminish when we forget how extravagant he has been to us. I woke up this morning a son of God. If I die today, I'm going straight to heaven. Every sin has been forgiven. My debt, which I couldn't have paid for in a million lives, has been cancelled. Now, when I remember that on a Monday morning, that's going to change the way I go to work. Come on. When I remember that on a Sunday morning, it's going to change the way I do something like worship. When I remember that 
on the ordinary, routine, mundane days, it reminds me, John, he deserves your best. He's not looking for perfection. That's impossible. So get over it. He's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your best. And that night, in that room, at that moment, that was the best she could give. He deserves your best. Why? Because he gave his best for us. I love how it's put there. Therefore, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. When you remember that your sins are forgiven, being poured out is not an issue. When you remember that you were and I were on our way to hell and we're now not, being poured out is not an issue. When, when we remember that He gave His best for us, giving our best for Him is not an issue. The key is to remember, the key is to understand, the key is to remind ourselves of the immensity of His extravagance to us. Even in the midst of a cost of living emergency, even in the threat of, a, of an imploding European continent, even when the stock market doesn't know which way to go, even when interest rates are going up, we remember that He has been extravagant to us. Extravagant, extravagant to us. And when we remember that, pouring something out is a bargain. Whatever we give him, it's a bargain because he has given us everything. I love what the hymn writer says in one of my favorite hymns in the whole world. He starts the hymn by saying, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. Poor contempt on all my pride. Look at how he finishes. Were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be an offering far too small. Why? Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's make Jesus turn. Let's make Jesus turn today. Let's make Jesus turn tomorrow. Let's make Jesus turn wherever we are. Let's live with such an attitude of understanding of his extravagance towards us that we say, Lord Jesus, we will give you the best of who we are, the best of what we've got, the best of all that we can be. We will give it to you. Why? Because you gave your best for us. Why don't you stand with me? The band is going to lead us in a beautiful song. Jesus has been extravagant to you. Whether you believe it or not, He has been extravagant to you. And in response, He's looking for a mentality of extravagance that will say, Lord, the cause is worth the cost. Where we say, Lord, you are worthy of my best. You are worthy of the best that I am at any given moment of my life. And Lord, I don't want to be a man or a woman of indifference who treats holy things with indifference, but I want to be a man, a woman of extravagance. 
that having been forgiven, we would lavish our best on you. And so Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters as we consider this amazing subject of being poured out. Lord, I pray that we will remember that you were poured out for us. We're only here today because you were poured out on the cross. We're only here today because you poured yourself into humanity. We're only here today because you poured out your blood for the sins of the world. We're only here today because when we were lost and undone, when we were in the darkness, when we were far from you, you poured yourself out for us. May we never forget that. May we never become familiar with it. May we never take it for granted. And may we always live extravagant lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.